When you have an ideology that pretends to know exactly who the oppressors are and who are the oppressed, then Jews who do on average better than the mean are going to be viewed as oppressors. For decades, David Bernstein has served in senior roles at major Jewish organizations. But when he saw the effect that woke ideology was having on these institutions, he tackled it head on, starting a new nonprofit demanding a return to classical liberalism. I want there to be conservatives. As the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says, a bird needs a left wing and a right wing in order to fly. We dive into his book, Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews, and discuss Kanye West, Elon Musk, and the Soviet Jewish refusenik, Nathan Sharansky. When he hears woke ideology in America and the West, it sounds the same to him as the communist ideology that he grew up with, except that they've replaced class with race. David Bernstein, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Great to be with you. So, well, let's just start here, okay? Kanye West, or Ye, um, he said some, like, shockingly, I mean, horrifically anti-Semitic things recently. Um, and there was, of course, this huge outcry. But I, one of the things I noticed is there was an outcry from some people on the left who, to me, struck me as being very transparently quite anti-Semitic. And I'm trying to kind of make sense of all this. I don't give me a... Give me your thoughts here, please. Yeah. Well, you know, the dynamics of American politics today being as polarized as they are, people use anti-Semitism as a political football. We've even seen this in polling data that the right tends to blame the left for anti-Semitism. The left tends to blame the right for anti-Semitism. In the center, they treat it as a pox on both of your houses, and I think they're probably right. You're seeing different variants of anti-Semitism on the far right, and you're seeing different another variant of anti-Semitism on the left. So we're seeing it manifest in both places. Um, and the left wants to, whenever they see um, anti-Semitism either on the left or somebody who's not really on the left but expressing a different variant, they'll blame it completely on the right. It, they're, they're, they're parroting white supremacy is what they'll say. And that's what they've uh, accused Kanye West of, of doing is parroting white supremacy when he's actually expressing um, a variant of anti-Semitism that you see, I call it black supremacist anti-Semitism. It's got a little bit of radical social justice ideology in it with, with some white supremacy anti-Semitism, traditional anti-Semitic tropes, mixed in with some unique variants that you see in, on, in radical black spaces as well. Okay, that's frankly fascinating because you're saying that Kanye has included some kind of critical social justice anti-Semitism anti in what he's talking about. You don't typically associate him with that, though. Yeah. So many of his followers and the people who defended him on the left would say that really, as a black person, he cannot be racist. And I think Kanye himself might have made similar comments that that racism is requires you to have power and you only have power if you're part of the white dominant class. And so that that is where you start to hear echoes of radical leftist social justice ideology. Oh, fascinating. I didn't even realize that he was making this case because, you know, obviously he's, you know, not without privilege, uh, you know, himself. Right. No, he's, a, uh, he's a billionaire. That should give him plenty of privilege. Right. Well, so let, let's jump to another kind of current issue um, as we start, you know, discussing your, your wonderful book, Woke Antisemitism. Actually, I found it, it went quite beyond just the concepts of antisemitism. And this is, you know, I, we're, we're going to discuss all this today. But what do you make of all, everything that's happening on Twitter right now? For example, Elon Musk being sort of called far right, being saying that he's, 
you know, supporting terrorist groups with his, you know, tweet of a little bunny, um, all this kind of stuff. How, what do you do? What do you make of all this? Yeah. So obviously, I think Elon Musk comes in, points out what we all knew, which was that there was a decided leftist bias in Twitter, and you can see this in the various. Uh, analyses that are being done by Barry Weiss and others where, um, you know, where there were people that were filtering out certain views that they didn't agree with. So that that was happening. I think we all knew what was happening. And what he did is sort of bring a level of transparency to that. And I think transparency is going to be very important for Twitter's future. You know, you don't have to let anybody say whatever they want, but you should be intellectually honest and you should be honest to the public about what you're filtering and what you're allowing to go unfiltered. Sometimes I wish he'd be a little less bombastic himself um, in it. You know, I, I think his credibility is important and I'd rather him sort of n not go off on these various tangents, but that's just probably his persona and it's giving expression um, in Twitter. Um, but there are, any, there are people because that they've lost this sense of place because now the people that they wanted to be, uh, to be filtered are no longer filtered and maybe they're worried that they're going to be filtered. Um, they're accusing him of being a fascist or a, a fanatic. And I think it's just ridiculous, of course. Um, you know, the word fascist is one of the most abused terms today. You know, you can call anybody a fascist who disagrees with you now. And I think, and that's what they're starting to do with, with Elon Musk. When we think about what was happening on Twitter, right? There's, I, I think of cancel culture, right? But there's this, uh, there's this sort of, I don't know if you call it like a quiet element of cancel culture where you just, the populace simply just doesn't know what was canceled because it's filtered using all these, you know, means that that Elon Musk and his people have been have been revealing over the last, uh, you know, days and weeks. In conversations, we've, I remember you've told me before that, uh, you know, you feel like cancel culture itself is sort of the half the road to anti-Semitism or halfway to anti-Semitism, something like this. So, so how, how does this kind of, you know, soft I don't know if it's exactly soft, or maybe even cancellation isn't the right word, but this phenomenon that, that you can basically remove a whole realm of thought or way of thinking, some of it extremely legitimate and critically important. For example, the Great Barrington Declaration you know, proposal on how to deal with the pandemic, which was actually just traditional pandemic policy, which got shelved and, and hidden through these methods. So, so, so tell me about that. Sure. When you talk about cancel culture, the people who deny it or deny that it happens like to f focus on cancel the cancel part of it, but they don't like to talk about the culture part of it. So, okay, a few academics get canceled here and there, and you're, you're treating this as if it's some great sin. Well, there's a culture, and the culture is extremely censorious. It's meant to uphold certain ideas as being beyond beyond scrutiny, that there's only one way to understand disparity in society, for example. That's a big one. Um, and you have to adhere to that one, that, that one set of explanations or you're beyond the pale. And I think there are many people who are, who are imposing this in various ways. One way, of course, is just to filter it out. Another way is to go after people who say the quote unquote wrong thing. Um, and another way is what I call micro-cancellations. Micro-cancellations are sort of the everyday snark and dismissal that you see on Twitter and social media that treats people who articulate alternative ideas as if they're, as if they're somehow beyond the pale. And I think that's all part of this culture. And you're seeing it in these survey data on a regular basis. When you look at the surveys, we did a survey in August, the summer, August 2022, 
and it found that literally everybody believes that they're being in a much more censorious culture today than they were 10 years ago. Even progressives, by the way, are worried about being canceled by other progressives. So you can see that that's changed. Americans are self-censoring at rates higher than they were during the McCarthy area in, in the United States. So to me, that's what a cancel culture is, and it plays out on social media, and it plays out in our everyday lives. We've done it. We're all a bit complicit to this, right? Yeah, yes, I think we are a bit complicit in this because no one wants to be called out, and so sometimes we just stay silent. It's a remarkably small percentage of American society that's doing all the tweeting. I just heard recently it's probably about 6% of Americans doing 97% of the tweeting, creating this sense that, that there are much larger, bigger, more amplified voice than they actually are. And, and so that means that there are a lot of people, probably identif self-identified progressives who are, have disproportionate power in the discourse. Um, and what will happen with Twitter is, is really hard to say. You know, I don't know how you create both a platform that allows for maximum free speech and at the same time filters out some of the most extreme sentiment, whether it's from the far right or the far left. It's, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do by algorithm. It's very hard to entrust a group of people who are your, your censors, especially if they're 23-year-old you know, woke ideologues from Stanford who are coming in there and controlling what, what gets heard and what doesn't get heard. And I don't have the answer to how to make it the kind of platform that will both allow free speech and, and mitigate against the most extreme sentiment. I've been shifted from my in my thinking over the last some years to becoming more and more of a free speech absolutist, even though there's some things I really find abhorrent. Like for example, Holocaust denial would be a great example of something. Yeah. You know, it is it is challenging and there are there are edge cases and I think some people want to use the edge cases to say, okay, well there really shouldn't be free speech. And that's where I'll push back. I think we should err on the side of the free expression of ideas. We need ideas to be brought out in public, to be subjected to the spotlight, to be um, scrutinized so that we know when we're wrong. I want to know when I'm wrong. But there are times when you, you, there, are, there are educations like Holocaust denial, like very explicit, demeaning, racist slurs. Um, and I think it's proper for us to say, well, I'm not going to engage with that. I'm not going to platform that. I'm not going to allow my media company to be, uh, to be a place where that, that kind of discourse takes place. Um, but it's hard because, because there are a lot of edge cases along the way where you could say, well, you know, something that I, don't, I strongly disagree with still might be legitimate discourse. The person is engaging in good faith. The person is trying to bring out um, an idea to the marketplace that, you know, that, that at least deserves a hearing. So those are hard cases. I'm a, I'm a, certainly, I'm a First Amendment absolutist. I, I believe that the First Amendment should apply almost in every circumstance where, you know, where somebody has the, the right to speech. And we should, we should guard that vigilantly. But that doesn't mean that, um, that you know, every private company or every private organization has to play host to the most extreme sentiment. But the problem is, the problem is in this, especially in this social media sphere, and I've been struggling with this, right? You can take some really crazy you know, abhorrent ideas and kind of like, you know, seed them into the discourse and they mm -hmm. kind of take off, right? And that, that's deeply disturbing to me as well. Yeah, and you know, in, in some ways in this environment, this Wild West social media environment, what we want are consumers who are capable of having 
you know, critical thinking skills and being able to make sound judgments because we're being exposed to many more things than we were years ago in, in, in ways that we were not exposed. You know, I grew up with, you know, Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather who were sort of narrating a, a perspective and you could say it wasn't always accurate it didn't always wasn't always inclusive but it still limited the number of really extreme voices that were in the mix um, we no longer have that ability to to narrate and mediate those voices anymore so we need people who are more capable of sifting through complex ideas and figuring out what's legit and what's not well so the obvious thing to talk about now is wokeness or this you know critical social justice ideology, mm -hmm. because it, it seems to be somewhat antithetical to critical thinking. I mean, that's been yes. my conclusion based on, you know, numerous scholars I've read in the area. I think that's right. So I define wokeness as being two things. One, it's this belief that racism and prejudice and oppression are not just a matter of one's personal attitude, but they're built into the very fabric and structures of society. That's its first observation. And the second is that only those with lived experience of that oppression are qualified to define it for the rest of society. And it's that second tenet of woke ideology that makes it really an ideology. It, 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 it's often weaponized to say, you're speaking from a place of privilege if you offer an alternative point of view. And I think that's, that's the source, that's the ideological source of cancel culture is that standpoint claim that you, you, have to, you have to have lived experience, you have to have been oppressed yourself. And look, both of those things can be true, but they're not always true. There's oppression in societies, right? I mean, I think Jim Crow America was probably a pretty oppressive place. I'm, I know Nazi Germany was a very oppressive place. So oppression can be woven into the fabric of society. And it can be true that somebody who's suffered from oppression might have an insight that the rest of us should listen to and we should be open to, right? As a Jewish person who experienced a lot of anti-Semitism, I'd like to think you would want to hear my point of view on it, but it can't be the final say, right? Because um, there are also data points out there. First of all, there might be other Jews who have totally different experiences than me, and so why would you just listen to me? And also that, you know, if the Pew study comes out with a survey as it did that says that Jews are the most admired religious group in America, I have to take that seriously too, and that might balance my, my own personal lived experience. Are Jews white? It depends um, on what you mean by white. Anti-Semites tend to associate Jews with whatever they don't like. So when whiteness was considered a moral good, as my colleague Pamela Paresky likes to say, um, Jews weren't white. And when whiteness now is considered by the woke left as an unmitigated moral evil, then Jews are white. Um, my mom is from Baghdad, Iraq. So according to 23andMe, I'm 50.4% Western Asian. Am I white? Well, if someone considers me white, they can, you know, I guess. Unfortunately, though, that when people um, say that Jews are white or when our Asians are white adjacent, what they mean is that they've taken advantage of the white power structure for their success. So that's the ideology that's behind it. And it's a way of, of, of saying, in order for you not to be considered white, you're gonna have to now be allies on, on this ideology, and you're gonna have to condemn those who are using their whiteness as political power. These things seem to be somewhat arbitrary. 
so arbitrary. A friend of mine who's a Chinese American was saying that she was put into an Asian affinity group in her school system with an Iranian who has really nothing in common ethnically with her. her the experiences were were not in not anywhere near each other. Yet they're both put into this arbitrary Asian category. Um, and um, I think that's very destructive. Racism may be one explanatory factor for why some people have more and some people have less, but it's only one factor. And we should be able to look at these complex social problems. We know that there are multiple factors and why some groups do better than, than other groups at any given time, and that it's, in, it's fluid. And, um, and if we're not honest about those various factors and, and mobility, then we end up actually not even solving the problem. So if you say that systemic racism is the only reason why certain groups do better than other groups, what you may be missing in the process are some deep social factors that may be critical that we have to actually address if we're gonna see the kind of mobility that we want. And I think that's, that's lost in this entire discourse. And it's, it's, really, it's really a disservice to the people it pretends to help. You're making me think of, you know, Harvard admissions. You know, there's this whole lawsuit going on and, and how there's this, the, the current approach to limiting Asians entering uh, the system actually mirrors very, it's very similar to how Jews were limited Absolutely. from entering the system back in the day. Yes, and um, the fact that Asian Americans are being explicitly discriminated against is, in, in today's admission policies is a big problem. There was a fascinating statistic that I saw from Pew's uh, research that 62% of black Americans oppose affirmative action in higher education. Um, so that tells you how diverse these communities are and how wrong it is to essentialize them in, in everything that they do, including in how they admit people into college. This discourse wants to attach privilege and power to identity as if it's always true under every circumstance. And I think that's, that's profoundly ridiculous um, to say that just because you have uh, what's considered white skin, that you're automatically privileged in every context, and that if you're black, you're automatically oppressed in every context. And it, it breeds a kind of resentment that we see on the part of, of many people who would say, well, listen, you can call me privileged all you want, but I've grown up under the most extreme circumstances and I don't feel privileged. And that, that also breeds a kind of identity politics, white identity politics that can go in the wrong direction as well. So I can't help but notice um, as we're speaking here that your organization has the word liberal in its name. So why don't you tell me a bit about your organization and the and your background? Frankly, you mentioned that you're 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 a fifty percent West Asian. That's not even a category I was familiar with until just now. But yeah, tell me about that. Sure. So the organization is the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. You could find JILV.org. Um, and by liberal, we mean classically liberal. We don't mean politically liberal. When I was growing up in Columbus, Ohio, in you know, the 1970s and 1980s, um, most of the liberal people I knew, the politically liberal people I knew, were also classically liberal. They believed that in the free expression of ideas, they would have defended the old ACLU when it was still defending civil liberties and not just an all-purpose progressive organization. Um, that's what I believed at that time. And I also held probably traditional politically liberal views on a lot of issues, on church-state separation, on immigration, and the like. As woke ideology sort of took over the discourse, those two versions of being liberal became disjoined. 
And many liberals became what you might call progressives today, people who believe in this, in sort of the woke proposition of, you know, a power and privilege and the like. Um, there are a lot of us out there, a lot of us um, classical liberals out there who still believe in many politically liberal ideas, but we don't, we believe in the free expression of ideas. I want there to be conservatives. As, um, as the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says, a bird needs a left wing and a right wing in order to fly. And I, and I think that that's true. Like I want to be in conversation with people who are politically to the right of me, who might, I might disagree with on key issues and maybe they'll pull me a little bit in their direction. Maybe I'll pull them a little bit in my direction. That's what a healthy uh, body politic does. Um, uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're in a very healthy body politic today. I think, and especially if the liberal ideas have been sort of ex purged from the ranks of the progressives. Tell me a bit more about how you kind of got today. You've been, you know, deeply involved in all sorts of Jewish organizations. Yes. So I grew up um, with a father who was a traditional civil libertarian, belief, deep believer in civil rights, and a mom from Baghdad, Iraq, who was Jewish, but um, left Baghdad and came to this great country of United States of America, thinking, you know, that the streets were paved with gold. Um, and for her, they still are. Yeah. Um, and, and can't imagine why anyone would, would want to talk poorly of this country. Um, and so those were two forces in my life, um, which would, made me sort of uh, resistant to woke thinking because, you know, woke thinking tends to view America as sort of a country that's fundamentally corrupt and, um, and also doesn't much value the civil liberties and free speech tradition of this, of this country. And that was also uniquely Jewish. I grew up debating around the dinner table, the Shabbat dinner table, and that meant that I could have any view I wanted and argue with my parents and my friends. And we argued constantly. Some people have called it Jewish debate culture. So that's part of what it means to be Jewish to me. It's, it's deeply embedded in the Jewish tradition. There's even a phrase in Hebrew, machloket l'shem shemaim, which is arguments for the sake of heaven. And that's very much a part of our, our culture. So to me, when woke ideology started uh, encroaching in Jewish life, it was a shock because that to me was deeply un-Jewish, that you were now imposing a set of views on how right-thinking people should think. Um, and um, and I, so I resisted that from the very beginning. And very early on, when I started hearing people use phrases that like, um, that racism equals prejudice plus power, I thought to myself, where's that coming from? And does that mean that if, that a group that's considered part of the power structure, like Jews, are not capable of being victims? Is, does that mean that marginalized groups can't be victimizers? And I very early on, even 20 years ago, started warning the Jewish, in the Jewish community that, that this ideology, which was in its infancy, perhaps, outside of the academy, was making its headway into various forums and that we should watch out for it. And I wrote about it and, um, you know, obviously no one took my warnings um, and, and, you know, fast forward 15 years, 20 years, and it really became the dominant discourse. Well, I, I'm not going to say the dominant view, but, but it feels sometimes like it's the dominant view and that's very different. Right. I think that's, that's a very good yeah. distinction. Most people do not, if you ask them whether racism equals prejudice plus power, I think the vast majority of people would say absolutely not. But the people with a lot of cultural power in certain institutions are saying precisely that. 
and very often they're going unchallenged. There's this phrase that I've long liked, um, you know, never wrestle with a pig because you'll get dirty and the pig likes it. And I, I think a lot of mild-mannered, thoughtful people, whether on the sort of right or the left, um, when they first heard these claims, these ideological claims, they didn't take them very seriously and they didn't want to wrestle with the pig. They didn't want to um, get dirty in the process. So if someone was making these vehement claims about the way the world was, they just sort of went along with it. And slowly but surely, that started taking over many institutions and in institutional life. And, and I think that's what we're seeing in so many institutions and we're seeing it now in medicine and we're seeing it in law and we're seeing it in the arts and um, we're seeing it in the Jewish community. We're seeing it in the civil rights community. And, um, and that's because none of us wanted to quote unquote wrestle with the pig. We just let it go and gain more and more cultural power to the point now where, where we can't even have proper discussions with each other. So how is it possible that that this has kind of entered the Jewish community, given that there's this strong Jewish debate culture that you're describing? You know, it's a very powerful force, especially for Jews, American Jews, who fashioned themselves to be part of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. They want to be on the right side of history. They want to be with the good guys who are helping people realize their rights. That's very deeply embedded in Jews. So when people in the name of civil rights are bringing in the wokeness Trojan horse and saying uh, that racism equals prejudice plus power, or they're saying that America is an oppressive country, um, it's very hard for American Jews in particular not to be on their side. The, the, they're, they're pulled in that direction. They want to be with the supposed good guys. Unfortunately, sometimes the supposed good guys aren't really the good guys. Sometimes they're doing it for power. Sometimes they're trying to gain power to impose perspectives on other people. It has a certain totalitarian feel to it. And, and so they're being pulled into this sort of totalitarian ideology and maybe not even fully aware of it. Um, and it takes some, uh, some people start to feel that this is just not right. You know, I don't believe America is a pervasively racist country. It's a country that's constantly trying to live up to its own highest ideals. It's failed sometimes, but it's a country that we can be proud of that's brought so much to the world. That's been the traditional Jewish narrative. And that's completely under assault. And I think many just haven't realized how far they've, they've moved in this direction and how destructive that is for the American ideal in their own best interests. And just, you know, very briefly, when you say it's a totalitarian ideology, what do you mean exactly? Maybe I should say it's a totalizing ideology in that it claims to have the total truth and that anybody who doesn't go along with it is, is, is engaged in a kind of oppressive discourse or racism or, you know, what, ha what have you. But I do also see it as very similar to the totalitarian ideologies that took over, you know, in, in the former Soviet Union. And Natan Sharansky, the great Soviet Jewish refusenik, who was in the, you know, the Gulag nine years, talks a lot about how when he hears woke ideology in America and the West, it sounds the same to him as the is the communist ideology that he grew up with, except that they've replaced class with, with race and ethnicity. It sounds exactly the same. And, and that's why so many Jews from the former Soviet Union and other countries that have lived under real tyranny 
they tend to wince whenever they hear these platitudes coming from the woke left and, and, um, and oppose it. No, and of course, he, he talks about that in the foreword to your book. There's, there's a profound irony in a way, right, uh, that, as you described, there's so many Jewish people that may have, you know, kind of become enticed by this ideology because you make a pretty convincing case in the book that wokeness essentially will always lead to anti-Semitism. And I, I, want, I want you to kind of explore this, this idea because it's, it's quite compelling to me. Yeah, so when you have an ideology that pretends to know exactly who the oppressors are and who are the oppressed, and you have an ideology that conflates success with oppression. In other words, if you're above the mean in average educational achievement and in income or what have you, by definition, you are complicit in oppression, then Jews who do on average better than the mean are going to be viewed as oppressors. Um, that can easily be applied to countries as well, and you see it applied with Israel. So if Israel is doing better economically than its neighbors, if it has more technology and greater firepower, it's going to be viewed as the oppressor, even if it's not instigating the conflict. And, and so I think that's what we're seeing in woke ideology. It provides the perfect template for anti-Semitism to thrive. Um, it, it says that, um, that your identity as a person, whether it's as a man or as a white person or as a Jew or as a black person or as a female, is inherently attached to privilege or oppression. So Jews are going to end up on the wrong end of that formula every time. Um, and we're already seeing evidence of that. You'll hear this commonly said, right? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm just anti-Zionist. What's your position on that? I think that Israel is a country, and as a country, it can be legitimately criticized by people. Any given day on is in Israel, you can read the press or watch the news, and you can see Israelis criticizing the government. That can't be viewed as anti-Semitism. It's not anti-Semitism. Um, now, if you say that the country, Israel, has no right to exist as a Jewish state, 75 years after its founding and it's thriving in the Middle East, you say it is absolutely an illegitimate enterprise. I think that comes pretty close to being anti-Semitic. It's denying the Jewish people what you would give to almost any other people, the right to self-determination. And I think that is primarily an anti-Semitic movement. It almost seems to be like the sort of the dominant manifestation of anti-Semitism. Would, would you agree with that? Certainly on the left, I would equate anti-Semitism on the right like a heart attack. It, it, it kills you in the here and now. There are people who, who buy into the ideology who might take you know, their weapons to a synagogue, and that's caused the Jewish community to have to increase its security. And almost every single Jewish institution now will have a, a police officer on site. So we have to become more secure, and that's mostly from extremist anti-Semitism on the right, also from fears of, of radical Muslim anti-Semitism and terrorism. Um, anti-Semitism on the left is more insidious. It's more like cancer than it is a heart attack. It, it is corrosive to Jewish well-being. It, um, it makes it harder for 
young Jews to express themselves on a college campus and to be supportive of Israel on a college campus because they're told they're part of this, you know, th this oppressive class and that they have no right to speak. It makes it so Jews worry about their future in American politics. Um, I think many Jews worry that they're going to be disenfranchised over time from American politics if this ideology continues to have its way. So it's, it's a slower moving form of anti-Semitism, but just as dangerous in many ways as anti-Semitism from the right. Sometimes described as a horseshoe, right? As a horseshoe. That, yeah. Yes, I think that's right. And at times the two converge, like in a Kanye West, you know, um, where when the extreme right and the extreme left start to make common cause in their anti-Semitism, which you'll see. You know, there are extreme right-wingers, by the way, who prom promulgate the idea of Jewish privilege, who th which then gets parroted on the extreme left. And you can see that these are very similar ideas, the idea of, you know, Jewish power and the Jews are controlling the media and banking and Hollywood and everything else um, morphs easily into the idea of Jewish privilege on the left and vice versa. So, you know, one of the things that you mention in the book, which I thought was really interesting, is the Jewish Mapping Project. There was a group of Boston that was associated with the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement. Um, which tries to boycott Israel around the world, in particular U.S. college campuses. These are radical activists. And they undertook this mapping project where they mapped out all the Jewish organizations in the greater Boston area, as well as the individual leaders, and they doxed them. They gave their personal addresses and the addresses of these institutions. By the way, even some of the left-wing Jewish organizations that um, are nominally pro-Israel were also targeted and their addresses were publicly exposed. So this was uh, an obvious, very extreme case of this. But you can imagine this becoming more and more commonplace as this ideology continues. I mean, if people are going to see the world in these stark, oppressed, oppressor terms, then it gives permission for radicals like the Mapping Project to go and start naming people and where they live because they're part of the oppressive class, of course. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit. You know, I've been thinking about groups like the ACLU or, frankly, the ADL, a you know, Jewish organization, um, that seem to have really imbibed a lot of this woke ideology. And you see it in some of their pronouncements, some of their decision making. You mentioned that the ACLU has deviated significantly from its from its core mission. Um, how, how do you are, are these organizations like no longer able to fulfill their mandates? How do you see this? ACLU is probably the great case study here. You know, over time, maybe a CEO of the ACLU who didn't really abide by the same civil liberties sensibilities as his, press, uh, his uh, predecessor did, came in. They hire a lot of young staff who themselves are woke. They don't ask them questions about whether they actually believe in civil liberties. And they start to make demands on the organization. They become more populated in, in the organization. Um, and the traditional civil liberty stalwarts in the organization, who still exist, by the way, even in the ACLU, and they continue to do some civil liberties work, they become you know, the sort of minority voice within the organization. And before you know it, in the, the ACLU is doing I think they say 18 other things, free speech just being one of them, and that often loses out to other political concerns that they may have. Um, there are Jewish organizations that also have gone down a similar path. It's like slowly boiling the frog. You know, um, people don't 
know what's happening around them or they sense uh, they sense things are changing but they can't quite put their finger on it and before you know it the organization itself is not what it used to be and i think that's happened in institution after institution and it certainly happened in a great effect after the death of george floyd when many organizations who had probably been putting off some of these changes all of a sudden just embraced it wholesale and sort of signed on the dotted line at that time and they've adopted policies that are very radical, and maybe they don't feel radical to them, but are very radical. You know, putting their own employees into affinity groups and the like, you know, white affinity groups and black affinity groups. And they've embraced diversity practices that are anything but diverse in, in nature. And, um, and it's gonna be very hard for them to put that aside. To, even if they now secretly believe, if some of the leaders secretly believe that they went too far at, in the moment, it's going to be very hard for them to now reclaim that lost territory. Um, and I think the only way to do that is to find courageous people in institutions who are willing to challenge it. They're in greater number than they even realize themselves. I always tell people to do the awkward dance in your institution. And the awkward dance is find somebody who you think might agree with you that there's problems in the current diversity, equity, inclusion training and say, you know, I have some issues with this and they'll, if they're with you, they might express some similar concerns. And before you know it, you realize you're in full agreement. If, if you have enough people like yourself out there, you can then go and perhaps challenge the, uh, the situation at your, at your workplace or in your school or wherever else you're finding it. So you mentioned diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you've made the argument that anti-Semitism has even appeared in this whole framework. Yes, it has. Um, and um, there, there was a study done by the Heritage Foundation, by Jay Green at the Heritage Foundation, that looked at the Twitter accounts of DEI professionals in college campuses and found that, there were, that they were disproportionately tweeting negative things about Israel and almost nothing about China. Um, which tells you something about their overall orientation. It's not a slam dunk that they're all, you know, frothing at the mouth anti-Semites, and I don't think that's true. But it tells you that they're of a certain ideological inclination, and that's going to play out in the way that they understand Jews. And we've seen this in many settings, in TEI settings. I know you had Nicole Levitt um, on your show. She's a a domestic violence attorney in Philadelphia, and um, she raised the issue of anti-Semitism in a DEI conversation at work and was basically shut down um, and was told that she was decentering anti-blackness. She's removing the spotlight from, from anti-blackness to anti-Semitism. And that's something that we're hearing over and over again. A psychiatrist at Stanford raised the issue of anti-Semitism in a diversity conversation and was told that it had no place in the conversation. Even though what they were talking about, the event that they were talking about, was a Zoom bombing that had swastikas, was explicitly anti-Semitic, they were still not given the permission to talk about it. So you can see how this plays out in DEI. And in many ways, we're empowering a bureaucracy, a new bureaucracy in, in tremendous numbers that has got this ideology built into it and many of those people are ideologues who look at the world through this oppressor-oppressed lens, and some of them are going to have attitudes about Jews in Israel that are abhorrent. And I'm worried that that's now being institutionalized in many places in the United States. Well, so as we finish, um, you know, you've started talking about this, but so what is your advice here to the Jewish community on one side and then, you know, 
sort of you know, the rest of the community in a broader sense. For, for Jewish organizations that have started to go down the path of anti-racism or whatever we're going to call it, critical social justice ideology, I would urge them to hit the pause button and to deliberate on these concepts. What is equity? What do they mean by equity? Is equity really about just doing what's fair for people? Or is it saying that, that anybody who succeeds is by definition complicit in oppression? And if it's that latter, is that something you really want to go down? Is that really the path you want to go down? And are you aware that that ideology is being weaponized against Jews and is going to foment more anti-Semitism at a time we're seeing a lot of anti-Semitism coming from all directions? Um, and in a larger society, I would say it's time for people generally, but also in the Jewish community, to start showing some courage. You know, I was watching these Iranian soccer players who refused to mount the words of their own national anthem. That's bravery. That's bravery. They're going to go back home to Iran, and I don't know what they're going to face or have faced already. Speaking out at your workplace, that's, I mean, okay, it might be a little bit of bravery, but it's not the kind of moral courage that we've seen great people exercise. We can do it. We can, we can provide support to each other. We can stand up for our, our values, our classically liberal values, our American values, and we can stand down this extremism that's coming from the far left and also from the far right, different but from the far right as well, by, by, by standing up for our democratic values, by standing up for the free expression of ideas in society. Well, David Bernstein, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you all for joining David Bernstein and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. 